Good morning, Linwood. Do not worry. I shot this short video before I left on sabbatical, so I didn't, I didn't break the sabbatical, even though I wonder if I were to mess up the sabbatical, would I have to take another one? Uh, never mind that. I am so excited for you to hear today from Pastor Jake Thurston from Resilient Church. You might have been here uh, earlier this spring when Pastor Jake and a couple members of his core team from Resilient Church in Vermilion, South Dakota were here on site and they shared briefly about what God has been calling them to do. I'm excited for you to hear a word from God today, from God's word, that is focused, I believe, on on what God might be calling the current generation in the church to do to set things up for the next generation. I just want you to know, I, I am excited for you to hear from Jake. And I also want you to know that there's a chance the Holy Spirit might stir something up inside of you and you might want to be a part of what Resilient is doing. And I want you to know, I would be wholeheartedly supportive of that. And I want you to go to the mission lunch after this and have some soup and salad and breadsticks or whatever they have on the, on the menu and hear a little bit more in depth about what God is doing and uh, how you might be able to be a part of it at Resilient Church down in Vermilion. But I didn't want you to wonder, did Pastor Mark know he was going to come up here and talk about this kind of thing? And, and yes, Linwood has a rich history of planting churches that plant churches. In fact, Resilient Church is, is primarily being uh, funded and planted by Ransom Church, which Linwood planted in 2009. So in many ways, Resilient Church is another granddaughter church. And we've got a lot of grandkids starting to run around uh, the, the region and the nation as the churches that plant churches that plant churches continue to grow. So... Uh, get ready to hear a word from God and uh, lean in and ask, what might the Holy Spirit be asking me to do as a result? God bless you. Hi, Grandma. It's so good to see you. Man, for those who maybe uh, didn't get the chance to meet me when we were here back in the spring semester, it was February. My name is Pastor Jake, and as Mark said, we're planting a church down in Vermilion, South Dakota, and we couldn't do this without our partner churches and especially our grandmother church. So thank you so much for your partnership in helping us get this thing off the ground. And there's still plenty of work to be done because I would love just to share a little bit more about what that means for you all and how you each have a chance to play a role in getting this church off the ground. But before we get to that, have you ever wondered if our culture is going to hell in a handbasket? No, but like, I'm serious, right? It is no question that our society has seen a drastic shift in the last couple of decades, right? You know, it wasn't that long ago when it would have been considered a social benefit to be a Christian in our society. It just seemed like it was natural. It was a highly accepted view of the world. It just seemed like it was foundational to our ethics and our virtues and just how we functioned as a nation, let alone as a people. It was, it was very, very accepted. But that's not so much the case anymore. As the nation continues to get more and more secular, it, it, it's particularly alarming, not only with where culture is going, but also seeing a rapid decline in the church and identifying as a Christian as a whole. In 2009, Pew Research came out with a study and found that 77% of U.S. adults identified as Christian. A really good number. But 10 years later, in 2019, they went back and conducted the same study and found that 
uh, 65% of U.S. adults now identify as Christians. That's a 12% drop over those 10 years and just a little over 1% of a decrease every single year. And you might think 1%, 65%, that's still a majority, right? Surely this isn't that big of a deal. But when that 1% each year represents 2 million adults who walk away from their faith in the church altogether, yeah, that's a big deal. This mass exodus from the church that we are seeing is why scholars today are calling America, the United States, a post-Christian society. People have moved on from Christianity being the dominant worldview for their life in the world. It's no longer socially, near as socially accepted as it once was. And we're seeing this all across and and just various facets of our society. And we know that we've got to do something. As a church and perhaps even individually, we know we've got to do something. But too often, our response is to cower away and hide. Hmm. If you've got your Bibles, we're going to be looking at 1 Kings chapter 19 today. Uh, I'll be reading from the New Living Translation. We'll have that on the screens, but otherwise we'll be in 1 Kings chapter 19. And we're going to be following the story of Elijah. Maybe you've heard of this guy before. Elijah was called to be a prophet to the nation of Israel. Perhaps during one of the most culturally corrupt seasons of this nation's history. Right? The people of Israel were called to be God's representative to a pagan world drowning in its sin. But God's people were obstinate. They chose to not follow his ways and instead gave themselves to worshiping the idol god of Baal and committing all sorts of crazy sins that just had never been seen in Israel's history up to this point. And uh, obviously God was very, very upset about it. So he calls Elijah to uh, bring them back and to turn them back to God. And this climaxes in... uh, his most famous story of his entire prophetic career. And that was when you see this duel of the gods on top of Mount Carmel, right? Where it's the prophets of Baal, thousands of prophets of Baal versus Elijah by himself. And uh, the uh, the prophets of of Baal were unable to call down fire to burn up these bowls or whatever. But then uh, God just like easily set fire to these seven bulls that were doused in water. They burst into flames and it resulted in the mass slaughter of these prophets of Baal. It was a good day that day. It's a good day. And you'd think that the prophet Elijah would have been excited, right? But that was hardly the case. Because what we see later is that Queen Jezebel, perhaps the one individual who was solely responsible for this mass cultural corruption, turns to him and says in 1 Kings 19 verse 2, May the gods strike me and even kill me if by this time tomorrow I have not killed you just as you killed them. Hmm. Uh, So I think Elijah's response is pretty adequate. He runs away. He runs away and he hides. And he not only goes into the wilderness to get away, but he prays to the Lord that he might die. Verse 4, I've had enough, Lord. Take my life, for I am no better than my ancestors who have already died. So the Lord lets Elijah rest easy for the night. He sends some angels to care for him. And then uh, Elijah makes his way to this sacred mountain in Israel's history. It's called Mount Horeb, just to seek refuge and spend some time with the Lord. And it was there that the Lord spoke to him in a gentle whisper 
What are you doing here, Elijah? The prophet replied again, I have zealously served the Lord God Almighty, but the people of Israel have broken their covenant with you. They've torn down your altars and killed every one of your prophets. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. I am the only one left. You can imagine how isolated Elijah had to feel. He looks at his people. He looks at this nation, his culture, that once represented the God of the universe to a world drowning in sin and now is mourning because that is all gone. It's all gone. So he'd rather have the God of the universe put him to death than be uh, struck down by the hands of his enemies. And, and I wouldn't blame him. But what's interesting is, your, is that we can see a similar thing that's happening even with the church in our own day. Granted, before I go on, I should, I should give this one caveat, okay? Because like, I don't want to compare the church's situation in America as that direct of a comparison to Elijah's day, right? Because praise God, we're not being slaughtered for our beliefs. Because there are very real countries and very real cultures that, uh, excuse me, <coughs> I'm okay, I promise. There's re- very real countries and cultures today that will put Christians to death because of this stuff, right? So I don't want to make that direct of a comparison to Elijah's cultural moment. But we are seeing that shift, that, that, that people who are walking away from the church who are once a part of it, just like Israel, those people were a part of that people group, right? And they walked away eventually. So we're seeing this shift happening. And again, just like Elijah, there's this fear that what once was a culture that was heavily influenced by Christ is now gone. And what's interesting is if you felt uh, this cultural shift the most, if you are older and if you've been a Christian longer, right? So the older you are and the uh, longer you've been a Christian, the chances are that you felt the shift the most. So I'm going to throw this graphic up. Uh, Yes, please. You people are heroes. Thank you. So if you look at this graphic, um, This never happens. I'm so sorry. No, they always call me Thirsty Thurston for a reason. (laughs) Woo! Okay, so let's look at this graphic. Uh, This breaks down the generation gap between religion affiliations in America. So in 2019, the top graph, it's a little hard to see, but the top graph says that in 2019, 84% of the silent generation, those born between 1928 and 1945, identified as Christians, overwhelmingly so, right? But then in uh, uh, 2019, you see that 76% of baby boomers identified as Christians, 67% of Gen Xers identified as Christians, and then only 49% of millennials identified as Christians. You see what's happening? In other words, the younger you are, the least likely you are to be a Christian. And we don't even have Generation Z on this graphic yet. Gen Z is uh, the kids born between 1995 and 2015. So it's the most recent college graduates and all the way down through like our seven-year-olds of today. And they're on track to being the least religiously affiliated generation in our nation's history. They are the first generation to be raised entirely in a post-Christian society. One in three 
actually uh, will ascribe to having no religious affiliation. Um, not only that, um, they are twice as likely to identify as atheist. 13% of Gen Zers are atheist in comparison to 6% of the adult population. That's crazy. More so, when you look at 18 to 29-year-olds specifically, 66% of them, two-thirds, will drop out of the church at some point or another during that age range. And we've got to wonder, why is this happening? Why is this happening with this young demographic in particular? I mean, there's, there's a lot of stuff that's going on for why that might be happening, but one person, uh, David Kinneman, who is the CEO and president of Barna Research Group, uh, who does a lot of different studies of Christianity in the nation and the world, writes one possible reason in his book, Faith for Exiles. One reason is that we live in a time and a place characterized by rampant skepticism about Christianity and the Bible. Hyper-rationalism and pop culture atheism undercut belief. A majority of non-Christian youth and young adults are jaded to the appeal of following Jesus. They reject organized religion altogether, especially claims of an exclusive faith like Christianity, that you can only be saved through Christ alone. Many view the Bible as a book of oppression that is harmful to the minds of its devoted readers. In some influential places, young Christians encounter condescension or downright hostility from their peers, their instructors, and social elites. The church is losing its influence, folks. And it's especially apparent in our young people. And I'd even go as far as to say that it's not near as easy to be a young person and a Christian in our society as it once was. Hmm. We bounce back to Elijah's story. Elijah doesn't let, or God doesn't let Elijah bemoan for too long. Okay? And in fact, he doesn't even encourage uh, Elijah with the mushy-gushy kind of encouragement you can get on Caleb, right? Nah. He gives Elijah a to-do list. Where are my to-do list people at? We got a handful, yeah. Don't you just wish that God could just speak to you with like a, here's a set of things that I just want you to do. Just do these things in your set, right? That's what he does with Elijah. <clears throat> Let's uh, pick up here in verse 15. Then the Lord told him, go back the same way you came and travel to the wilderness of Damascus. When you arrive there, do these three things. Number one, anoint Hazael to be king of Aram. Number two, then anoint Jehu, grandson of Nimshi, to be king of Israel. And number three, Elisha, son of Shaphat, uh, anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from the town of Abel Meholah to replace you as my prophet. Anyone who escapes from Hazael will be killed by Jehu, and those who escape Jehu will be killed by Elisha. Yet I will preserve 7,000 others in Israel who have never bowed down to Baal or kissed him. So the first thing I want to note here is that God does encourage Elijah by saying that he's saved 7,000 people who have not turned their back to him. In other words, there's still hope. There's still hope for his people. There's still hope for his culture. There's still hope for his society. Praise God for that. But then he also gives Elijah a to-do list to do these three things. Anoint Hazael king of Aram, anoint Jehu king of Israel, and anoint Elisha as his successor. Why these three things? Really random, right? Well, it turns out these three things were God's master plan of purging the evil that was presiding in Israel. Because as you go and read the first nine chapters of 2 Kings, you come to see all of this stuff come to fruition. It's actually a very bloody and gruesome story, <laughs> but 
it was God's way of truly getting rid of all the evil that was in this people. But here's the kicker. God's master plan to purge his people's sin depended on the next generation. Because it wasn't Elijah who would see this through, but his apprentice, his disciple, his assistant, Elisha. So although this was the last thing on God's to-do list for Elijah to do, it was actually the thing that Elijah does first. Let's pick the story back up here in verse 19. So Elijah went and found Elisha, son of Shaphat, plowing a field. There were 12 teams of oxen in the field, and Elisha was plowing with the 12th team. Elijah went over to him and threw his cloak across his shoulders and then walked away. Elisha left the oxen standing there, ran after Elijah, and said to him, First, let me go and kiss my father and mother goodbye, and then I will go with you. Elijah replied, Go on back, but think about what I have done to you. So Elisha returned to his oxen and slaughtered them. He used the wood from the plow to build a fire to roast their flesh. He passed around the meat to the townspeople, and they all ate. Then he went with Elijah as his assistant. Hmm. So arguably, this was the most important thing Elijah could have done. Right? Because what you would see in the rest of 2 Kings with Elisha's story is that Elisha did stuff that Elijah could have only dreamed of. And I think the point that we could take away from this message for our own selves is that sometimes God's means to purifying culture depends on the next generation. Because if you look at the stats of Christianity's decline in our society, maybe that gets you scared or alarmed. You want to cower away and hide, right? It's alarming. But let me tell you, there is still hope. Amen? There is still hope. And what is incredible is that God has reserved our own remnant of 7,000 people who have not turned their backs to God. And a sliver of this remnant happens to be about 4 million young adults that Barna would classify as resilient disciples. Okay, Barna Research Group, they do all, this stat, all these studies and stats with Christianity. They found that 10% of young adults who grew up in the church, so this is 18 to 29-year-old Christians, 10% of them will basically have a faith that's vibrant, that can withstand the cultural pressures that society places on them. It's, it's a very particular remnant. It amounts to nearly 4 million young adults. Okay? And what are the characteristics of these, res- of these young, resilient disciples. They, they have a whole full book of these things, but I'm just going to quote us a couple of them. Okay, So resilient disciples are young 18 to 29-year-old Christians who have these characteristics. One, they attend church at least monthly and engage with their church more than just worshiping services. Two, they trust firmly in the authority of the Bible. Three, they are committed to Jesus personally and affirm he was crucified and raised from the dead to conquer sin and death. And four, I love this one, they express a desire to transform the broader society as an outcome of their faith. And here's even just a couple more stats, if that doesn't get you excited. 89% say that my relationship with Jesus brings me deep joy and satisfaction 70% say that in my church, I regularly receive wisdom for how to live faithfully in a secular world. 88% say that the church is a place where I feel I belong. 
And 90%, a whopping 90% say that I want others to see Jesus reflected in me through my words and actions. Doesn't that get you excited? Doesn't that get you excited? Yeah. Yeah. It gets me excited too. And what's crazy is when you look at this commonality, the number one commonality between all of these young, resilient disciples is actually quite simple. They grew up in a family that took their faith seriously and attended churches that took the discipleship of the next generation seriously. That's it. They were surrounded by adults who practiced what they preached. It's the number one indicator. That's it. But that means that the inverse is also true. That the number one thing that actually drives young people away from the church isn't culture. It isn't secularism and all these crazy things that are out there that's pulling them away from the church. Certainly that is a part of it. But one of the major reasons why young people leave the church is because they grew up in either a church or a family that just didn't take it seriously. You know, they... They went to church, they went through the motions, it was something their family said was important, but they did not see the life transformation that Jesus brings. It was something that was just hearsay. It was just, it was just, it was just smoke. And this next generation is one of the most pragmatic and efficient generations you will ever see. They're going to put their feet to where their mouth is. And if they see something in their family that wasn't that producing that much fruit, why, why would they spend time with this? especially in light of seeing more and more stories of, of the church failing to respond to crises in our culture, who just constantly lives life of hypocrisy and other evil that comes out. Of course they have skepticism towards this. So in a way, we have to be honest and perhaps see that maybe the church serves as its own Jezebel sometimes. And that leads me to this important point. The next generation's allegiance to Christ depends on our allegiance to Christ. If we're not taking this seriously, why would they? You know, and this isn't just a message to all the boomers in the room or the the Gen Xers in the room. No, like even if you are in high school, your responsibility is to influence the next generation. I remember when I was in junior high, I looked up to Emily Smith and Kent Schultz. You know, these, 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 these sophomores and juniors and seniors in high school who just seem to have so much more of their life together but took their faith seriously. It doesn't matter what your age is. Our responsibility is to disciple and influence the next generation because they are our future and they are the ones who are going to truly make this world a better place in ways that we could have never dreamed of. But it starts with us. And so maybe you're on one of two spectrums here, one of two sides of a spectrum. Maybe on one side you look at your own life and you're like, you know what, maybe I haven't taken this faith thing seriously. And I've kind of failed to really integrate my faith into my family and just to disciple my kids and all this other stuff. And maybe you feel a little overwhelmed by that. Well, and if that's you, I just want to say one, there is still hope. If the Lord can bring revivals to society, he can bring revivals to your family. It's never too late. It's never too late to turn back to him and integrate that into your family. There's still hope. But maybe you're over here on the other side, 
and you have been faithful your entire life, and you've, you've pressed firmly into Jesus, and you've prayed for those in your influence. Maybe it's your kids, maybe it's your grandkids or students or whatever, and they just still seem to have gone astray. And you're wondering, did I do something wrong, God? Let me tell you, if you have been faithful to follow Jesus as much as you possibly can, and you've continued to pray with him, you, it is not your fault. Continue pressing forward. Continue to just to trust that the Spirit will work in their life at their perfect timing, at his perfect pace. Because here's the reality. The next generation needs you. They need you. Every Elisha needs an Elijah. Every young person needs an adult who believes in them. And every young person needs a church that sees value in them, who believes in them and can empower them to do the incredible things that God designed them to do. Because that is why we are planting a church in Vermilion, South Dakota. I don't know how much you know about Vermilion, but it's home to the University of South Dakota, right? Go Yotes! Any Yotes fans in here? Okay, we've got a couple, mostly Jacks fans, that's okay. Uh, Yotes need Jesus too, let me tell you, just as much as Jacks do. Uh, but man, it's, it's a college town with about 11,000 people who live in Vermilion, but then a, with a university of about 9,000 residential students, which makes it a hub for the next generation. Young people are everywhere. They're everywhere. The median age of this community is 23 years old. 60% of the population is under the age of 30. It's insane. And what makes Vermilion particularly special is it's um, a formation powerhouse. People from all over the world are ending up in Vermilion, of all places, to learn not just how they're going to make a living with their future job, but they're also figuring out who in the world they are what they believe, where they're going, and just the, the, answering all the biggest questions of their life. So it is all the more important for us to have a gospel-centered, Bible-teaching church in this community. Because this is pretty hard to believe, but out of the 18 churches in Vermilion, five, maybe six of them, are gospel-centered, Bible-teaching churches. And one of them is reaching students well. We have got to fix that deficit. So that is why we are planting Resilient Church. Resilient Church, where our mission is to form vibrant lives that withstand hardship. And in that, we can raise resilient disciples to have the characteristics that we just shared just a little earlier. But how do we form vibrant lives? Well, we do it through our three core values, worship, words, and work. Worship, words, and work. What are those? So worship is living daily with God. We accomplish this through our Sunday worship gatherings, but also incorporating the spiritual disciplines into our life daily. Words is learning wisdom and community. And we do this through small groups and discipleship and conversation and listening. And finally, it's work. Leveraging your calling for ministry. We do this through the good works in the community, through local serving initiatives and global outreach, as well as vocation workshops to discover how you were made to make a difference in this world, no matter where you are. And the last year has been incredible since we set foot in Vermilion. 
We started off as a small group of about 10 to 12 people that would meet in Vermilion's public library, for starters. And uh, as that grew, we became a group of about 20 individuals uh, who would meet for, you know, just talking through the word and talking through our different vision and stuff. Um, but then that shifted to becoming our, our core team who uh, committed to talking vision and strategy about how we wanted to plant this church, which eventually led to us having monthly worship nights where we saw a gradual increase in attendance. The first one was just under 40 people in January. Then February's was just over 40. And then March's was right at 60. It has been incredible. And I can share with you all the other stories of students, which is a nice plug for you to attend our uh, mission lunch after service today. We don't got lunch plans. Just to hear even more about what the Lord is doing. And we are on track to launch our services at uh, 10 a.m. on August 28th of this year. And you might be asking, well, where are you meeting? Where's your building? Well, we are meeting in this new event center called the Dakota Center. And it's in the back half of Vermilion's Pizza Ranch, folks. It's in their Pizza Ranch. And you might think that sounds insane. And I know it does. But look at this. This space is gorgeous. This is a setup from our April worship night where we saw just under 90 people in attendance for pizza and worship afterwards. Like, what is that? The Lord is clearly up to something in our community. It's clearly up to something. And it's been incredible to watch. But there is so much work that still needs to be done for us to hit our launch date. So that is why I'm going to turn to you guys, Linwood, for just a moment. And how you each can play a role in helping us get this church off the ground. And the first is you can support us financially. We're so grateful for Linwood already to be partnering with us financially, but how may you personally be called by God to give towards our ministry? We are currently doing a summer-long giving campaign to raise $75,000 in 75 days. This is to cover all of our pre-launch expenses, like the equipment we need to put on services on Sunday morning. And 10% of whatever we raise is going back to our local community through nonprofit partnerships. We're already just over $30,000 and we're 26 days into this campaign, which is amazing, but obviously still have a ways to go. So how might the Lord prompt you to give and support us? Or maybe there might be some of you where you're stirred to hop on board this train. Vermilion's only a 50-minute drive south of here, Right? Maybe you have a heart for USD and Vermilion. Maybe you have a heart for the next generation. Maybe you just have a heart for what, I don't know, the Lord is doing here. You want to join our launch team. And we'd certainly love to have those conversations with you if you're interested. So wherever you might land on wanting to get involved in supporting us, you are more than welcome to stop by our booth before you leave. If you got to get out here, we can answer your questions there. Or you can drop checks off there. Or you can attend our mission lunch in the youth room uh, right after this service and uh, you get a meal and you get to hear all the other nitty-gritty details of what's going on. You know, I love the way how Elijah's story ends and Elisha's begins. If you turn over to 2 Kings, you see uh, 2 Kings chapter 2, right before Elijah's whisked away on a chariot of fire, he turns to Elisha and asks, What can I do for you before I am taken from you? 
And I love Elisha's response. He says, let me inherit a double portion of your spirit. Wow. I think the current generation can get in a good habit of asking the next generation, what can I do for you before I am taken from you? And my hope and prayer is that their response is, let me inherit a double portion of your spirit. Let me inherit a double portion of your faith, a double portion of your influence to make twice the impact in this world that you could have only dreamed of. Let me make your dreams my reality. Take the gospel to places that you only could have wished. That's certainly our hope for Resilient Church. That we can be a current generation reaching the next generation and giving them a double portion of our spirits. But how might he be calling you to leave a double portion of your spirit? Maybe it's getting serious about family devotions and prayer as a family. Maybe it's... uh, taking the wacko college student who works for your company out for coffee and actually hear his viewpoints of the world. You know, it could even be as simple as hopping on board with the kids' ministry here at Linwood or becoming a team member with Zach in the youth ministry. They're always looking for incredible adults who are passionate about the next generation because you play a larger role in influencing their lives than you could ever imagine. How can you leave a double portion of your spirit? Because if we take that seriously, then maybe our culture isn't quite as destined to hell in a handbasket as we thought. Let me pray. Holy Father in heaven, I just thank you so much for the legacy that's in this room, that's a part of this church. And I pray that you can stir us just to learn what it means to live faithfully for you and not just to be so caught up in what we can do to change the world, but remember that the the world changers are those who are coming after us. Whether we're 80 years old, whether we're eight years old, we have a responsibility to influence those who are after us. I just pray that you can stir us to know what that looks like and help us to be serious about it. I just uh, continue to pray that you can bless this church, Lord. Use Linwood in powerful ways to make a difference. And uh, we're just so grateful to be under their care as we get this next generation of the church up and running. Lord, we love you. We praise you. In your name, amen.